This is the Education Gap Fly Show. I mean, uh, you can play pickleball in any weather, right? That's the wonderful thing about pickleball. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas C. Fordham Institute, filling in for Mike Petrilli here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Adam Tyner, Associate Director of Research here at Fordham and author of our newest report, How to Sell SEL parents, and the politics of social-emotional learning. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, David. I hope it's been a fun two weeks. I haven't gotten many emails from you. How are you hanging in there? Doing great. Yeah, feeling rested. Had a couple weeks off to do the honeymoon that we couldn't do in February when we got married, and I think we did it just in time before everything shuts down again. So feeling good. And where'd you guys go? We were mostly in France. We were in Spain for a couple of days, but mostly in Southern France doing the wine and stinky cheeses and all that stuff. It was great. Those people know how to live. That sounds fantastic. So I guess it was uh, delayed because of the general state of the universe. Right. Yeah. We got married in February, but had to push the honeymoon by a few months. And I think we did it just in time before everything's going to shut back down. Yeah. Well, I'm jealous. Listeners know I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and we flew back here yesterday. So I'm calling in. And my young son decided to stay on East Coast time. So I've been up since 2.35 this morning, checking out the stars and the moon and all the other words that he's learning. This is exciting. We got another new report here, and it's focused on something that I think actually is going to be at the front of everyone's minds, even folks like Checker Finn. Social emotional learning, obviously going to be a huge issue as kids come back from sort of their COVID vacation, such as it is, if they come back. So let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Adam, as I was mentioning just now, you have a new report out, How to Sell SEL. So let's talk about why you decided to do this study, sort of what the goals were. Yeah, well, you know, SEL has become a hot topic in the last few years, and it is just something that while we know that there's a lot of support from educators and there's a lot of controversies around different aspects of it, we just didn't know a lot about how parents viewed it. And so We teamed up with YouGov, the international polling firm, to survey 2,000 parents of students in grades K through 12. So we surveyed the parents about a range of topics related to social and emotional learning, and uh, it really turned out to be an interesting report. Sounds fascinating. Um, Can you just, as best as you can in a sentence or two, define SEL for us? What is SEL besides not being academics? You're definitely not the only one who is a little unclear about what the definition of SEL is. I just wrote a report on it, and I don't think that I have one single definition of it because the truth is that that term gets used by different people to mean slightly different things, and there are some different dimensions and different categorizations of different skills that from cognitive skills, social skills, emotional skills, identity, perspectives, people think values might be a part of it as well. That's a little controversial. So it kind of depends who you ask, but basically it means developing the social and emotional competencies that students need Uh, as a part of their education. And those things like motivation and stick-to-itiveness, sticking with things, not giving up, cooperation, working together with others. I mean, those are all aspects of it, but the truth is that it can encompass a lot of things outside the bounds of just the basic reading and math. 
and core academic subjects. And so our survey actually asks about, we, we follow the, the Harvard rubric on this and ask about dimensions of SEL that are aligned with that rubric. But we also ask about a lot of SEL related and SEL adjacent questions because we know that this raises a lot of different kinds of issues for parents and for educators and for students. And we didn't want it to be so narrowly focused that we might be leaving out important contexts. So we ask about different dimensions of SEL. We also ask about problems that parents may be perceiving. We ask them if they are concerned about aspects of SEL implementation and uh, what they're concerned about. We also make them kind of prioritize different aspects of their child's education to see how SEL related concepts get prioritized by parents when they're forced to make those trade-offs. And and so we ask a bunch of questions that are probably a lot of them are kind of SEL related or adjacent and not necessarily in the tightest meaning and definition of that term. Right. And as I understand it, part of the goal was to connect sort of the way policymakers or practitioners talk about SEL and the way parents think about it, right? And so help us out there a little bit. What do parents care about most? My overall takeaway from the report is that there's really broad support for the substance of SEL among parents. If you ask them whether schools should be teaching these different kinds of SEL-related skills to their children, in school, should that be a part of the education? Overwhelming majorities of parents say that those SEL-related skills have a place in school. And there is just really across the board, that's that's true whether the parents are Democrats or Republicans or by race or education level, almost everybody agrees that most of this stuff ought to be a part of their child's education. But What we also found is that there is some lack of support out there for the specific term SEL. So that you asked about how parents and and experts might see this or parents and educators might see this differently. I think experts and educators tend to know what SEL is more or less and have an opinion about it and to think it's important. But for parents, it is actually not as clear and sometimes it may be sounding like kind of ivory tower or wonky terminology. I mean, one way of kind of thinking about this is we asked them about a bunch of different SEL related program terms. And these weren't all exactly SEL. Some of these overlap with SEL in some ways, but for example, success factors and 21st century skills and social emotional learning and growth mindset and grit. And we had 12 different program names. We asked them, which of these would you most want your child to be enrolled in? Which of these would you least want your child to be enrolled in? Just giving them the names of these programs. And Social and emotional learning was actually at the bottom of the, the stack. It was actually second to last of the 12 that we asked about. And actually, a lot of that was driven by Republican parents who were especially turned off by the term social and emotional learning. There's not that much support, or there's at least a lot softer support for the term SEL as there is for the substance these specific skills about, you know, reasoning and problem solving or, you know, being cooperative or these kinds of 
you know, underlying skills, or when we talk about it in, in practice of like, you know, do you want your child to have opportunities to serve in leadership positions so that they can develop some of this? Parents get that. But when you just use that term, social and emotional learning, to some of them, it, it kind of turns them off. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think this actually reflects underlying difference in, in the way parents see the world? I mean, I can think of some alternative hypotheses here, right? So one might be that it's just terminology, right? And another might be that, you know, Republican parents don't necessarily trust teachers to have the same priorities as them. I right. mean, what do you think we're pick- you're picking up with this survey uh, in terms of sort of the pervasive presence of politics? So first, I'd want to underline that we really do see even, you know, the term SEL isn't like hated by all Republicans or something. We asked, for example, do you want your school to do more or less, or do you want it to be about the same in the realm of social emotional learning? The overwhelming majority of Republicans say they want the same or more. Most of them say the same, but this isn't something that, you know, any group of parents is super against. But I think that where we see softer support among some groups of parents, it's coming from probably a bit of both of those, where the terminology is probably sounding kind of wonky and ivory tower to some of them. But then, sure, yeah, you've got parents who in their free comments, you know, we let them give us their own opinions and their own words and kind of sort it through those and use some of those quotes in the report, which, by the way, you can find at FordhamInstitute.org. You can look at the whole report. We're not going to get through all the findings here. But some of the parents say, you know, this is a socialist plot. You know, there are people who really have uh, problems with SEL. It sounds bad to them. And also, they just think that schools ought to stick to academics. And that was another thing that I think is an important takeaway from the report is that to the extent that SEL is either framed as being in competition with academics or really is crowding out time for academics, parents are going to be less supportive of it. And we found that across the board, not just with Republican parents who express that concern most vocally, but with all kinds of parents who saw some trade-offs and who sometimes expressed concern that SEL could crowd out the more core academic function of schools. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little more. I have to say I'm a little mystified. You know, my assumption is that this is the sort of thing that comes up naturally in everyday interactions on the playground, in science class, when you're working mm-hmm. on a project together. Is this something that needs any intervention from policymakers whatsoever, or is this something mm-hmm. that happens totally organically as a result of just strong teaching and and sort of ethical, you know, intelligent leadership. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, David, that it's not clear what the best way to teach some of these things is, whether that should be explicit instruction in these things, or if they're learned better implicitly through exactly the types of things you were talking about. And so we we do ask in the survey uh, a question about that. Most parents say, as you might expect, that it should be a mix of explicit and implicit we call it direct versus indirect in the report. But I think it's a really important point that it's not the only way to teach these things is to sort of have a class on it. 
And a lot of this can be accomplished by, you know, holding students accountable for their behavior and the kinds of traditional things that we've always done. And we don't know how much of SEL is really new, why we're calling it that when we've had a lot of these ideas for centuries or thousands of years. Certainly uh, all modern education policy has had some of this stuff embedded in it. So it's, it's not totally clear whether the nomenclature is helpful or not. And it's also not clear how much this should be explicit versus implicit. I think those are some things we're going to have to hash out. But we definitely found in the survey that parents see that as something that should be taught in both an explicit and implicit way. And I think that learning that stuff in recess or learning it through playing a sport where you learn more, you know, teamwork and and endurance and stuff, those can be ways of learning SEL that really have that don't conflict with academics in any way and that may generate the broadest forms of parent support. Okay. All right. Well, we don't want to test our listeners' endurance too much here. Uh, So let me just ask one last question. Was there anything that surprised you about parents' responses? Yeah. One thing that popped out was that we included a few things in the survey that we kind of thought would appeal more to different types of parents. And so, for example, we thought that the term character education may be something that would be more palatable to conservatives. And what we found was actually that the term character education, when we put it up against other terms for SEL related programs, was actually just as favored by Democrats, maybe even slightly more favored by Democrats. Uh, That was a, a big surprise. So there were some places where we saw really more agreement than you might expect. And I think that really agreement on this, that, you know, SEL, the nuts and bolts of it, is important. You know, this is important in our schools. Um, is probably the the overall takeaway. And there's really just a series of caveats around. Maybe you should call it something different, or maybe it's better. You know, you have to communicate with parents because they're the most responsible for SEL in the child's life, not teachers. Which is another thing we found. I think that there's some caveats there, but the broad agreement was kind of surprising. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Again, Adam Seiner, Associate Director of Research here at Fordham and author of our newest report, How to Sell SEL, Parents and the Politics of Social-Emotional Learning. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Hey, well, I was just talking to our buddy Adam here. Sounds like he had a fantastic trip to the south of France. I'm very jealous. I'm here in... uh, the wonderful city of Portland, Oregon, where the temperature is expected to reach 108 degrees tomorrow. Wow. Not sure what to say about that, except my timing couldn't be worse. Time to get back to D.C., where it's nice and cool and somewhere in the mid-90s, I think. How are things where you are? Yeah, I'm not at 108. I think we're at 92. It's great pickleball weather, <laughs> David. Uh, it sounds like good pickleball weather. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can play pickleball in any weather, right? That's the wonderful thing about pickleball. Yes. How is the uh, season going? Are you topping the uh, league? I'm getting better every week. I have not had a faulty (laughs) serve for like two months now. All my serves are hitting. And so that's great. They used to not, you know, make it quite where they need to go, but my serve is improving. So I'm happy. Well, listen, it sounds like you've got a exciting study for us today. Tell us all about it. Yes, I have a study by Matt Kraft and colleagues. They're looking at how informal school-based mentors may impact a number of short and long-term student outcomes. This is not a you know, very 
deeply studied topic. So I was interested in it. So they're looking at outcomes like GPA and course failure and college attendance and annual income and just a whole slew of different outcomes. They use something I don't think we've ever used at Fordham, but the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to Adult Health, which is also Ad Health is the acronym here. It begins with a nationally representative sample of middle and high schoolers. That's where the survey picks up in 1994-95. So the kids are about 12 to 19 in age, and it follows them roughly 25 years. And during that time, they participate in five waves of intensive in-home interviews as they transition into adulthood. Ad Health uses this stratified sampling design for schools where these random sample of 20 students are taken from each strata to form a final sample of over 20,000 students in grades 7 through 12, again, starting in the mid-1990s. This is the primary question students are asked for which they base the analysis on. Other than your parents or step-parents, has an adult made an important positive difference in your life at any time since you were 14 years old? And then they ask how this individual helped, and then those open-ended data are coded as well. And the analysts focus on K-12 school-based mentors only, although there were other coded categories of mentors. On the method side, they use five different models with different samples and assumptions, and they try to account for selection bias, which is obviously an issue. They look across these five different models for patterns. They're using effects model, which controls for observed and unobserved fixed student characteristics. In this case, the variation comes from the differential timing of when students meet their mentors, and they're comparing treated students who identified a school-based mentor after their freshman year and never treated students who report never having a mentor. And then they complement that approach with three other models that compare outcomes between pairs of students. They're looking at fraternal or identical twins, best friends, and romantic partners all of which the surveys asked students to identify, and those data were used as long as that other student was in the same school. And then those three models are meant to also control for unobserved time-varying events or characteristics that pairs of students may experience or develop in common. And then they use a high school fixed effects model with a rich set of controls. I could talk a lot longer about the methodology, but let's just hear what they found. Descriptively, which to me was just as interesting as the more empirical stuff, over 15% of students report their most impactful mentor was a teacher, counselor, or coach, and that comprised a quarter of all mentors. This was behind only other family members who comprised 34% of all mentorships. Both genders are just as likely to report a high school mentor, but males are more likely to be identified as a mentor. White and Asian males are more likely to report a high school mentor than our Black or Latino peers, and mentorships are more common among students from economically advantaged families. The mentorship was important to students for more than five years on average, with 80% saying it was still important to them when they were between 18 and 26 years old. The main thing they did when they coded the data, uh, you know, the open-ended stuff, was provide guidance and share wisdom including decisions around post-secondary education, and they were often thought as role models. All right, in terms of the modeling across all five of the models, they find consistent evidence of strong positive relationships between having a high school mentor and students' short-term outcomes. For instance, compared to students who identify no mentor, 
mentored students see a 2 to 20% increase in annual GPA across the various models. They earn an additional 0.17 to 0.33 year length course credits per year. And they see an 18 to 35% reduction in the rate of course failure. Mentored students are also more apt to see a 19 to 46% increase in the likelihood of attending college. And mentoring is associated with nearly a full year of additional education. Compared to students from higher backgrounds, those from lower backgrounds see a greater advantage from mentoring in terms of the probability of attending college. And I'm nearing the end here. When they look at race and gender, they find that Asian males benefit the most in terms of GPA improvement and additional years of education. Earning outcomes were not statistically significant. And finally, they try to figure out, are there any school level variables that tend to predict the likelihood that students will indeed form these mentorships? They find three, a sense of belonging in the school community, smaller class sizes, and more sports teams. Woof, a lot Woof. there. Hope you caught some of that. I think I caught most of it. Let's start with just the question itself. I was struck by the breadth of it. I mean, we're talking about pretty much anybody except parents and step-parents, I guess. That's right. Um, Were there kids who said no to that question? I kind of want to flip it on its head and say, you know, how do we help these kids who don't have any adults who've made a positive impact in their life, right? But the question didn't just include teachers, right? It was including everything. Yeah. Everything. But they had, I think, four different buckets of mentor identification, and they were only drilling down into the K-12 school-based mentors, which was one of the coded categories. I mean, you alluded to this. It sounds like you weren't entirely convinced that we were picking up the effect of mentorship itself. Right. Um, one thing that I'm curious about is just, you know, where you think the selection is coming from, right? Is it that people are just more networked in general, if they have these sort of mentors, right? Or is it, what do we really think we're picking up here if it's not mentorship? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think it's the networking in general. I also think, and they allude to this, that these mentors, they're more likely to happen between if they share the same race or gender or background. And we've got most teachers who are middle and upper class, you know, and, and white. And so we tend to see a lot of those sort of matchings occurring with the middle and upper class kids. And you don't see them occurring as much as kids of, of, of other races, black and Latino kids are less likely to have those matches. So it could definitely have something to do with sharing the background, you know, between student and teacher. We've seen this in other research. And yeah, I think that the overall networking also plays a role, you know, that maybe some of these kids, you know, their parents are more likely to be you know, maybe friends or familiar with one another. It's it's hard to say, but hey, I mean, what did I say? Five different models they tried to to get at this. Yeah, and did, from the sounds of it, like the data are just incredible too. Did you mention were there twins or something like that? In, in yeah, the data? yeah, they were able to uh, look at fraternal identical twins. They were able to look at pairs. You know, pairs in terms of twins, naming your best friend and naming your romantic partner. <laughs> So trying to use all of those to identify, you know, unobserved uh, characteristics that we we can't put our finger on and control for those. Yeah, I mean, that's just that to me is kind of interesting, right? That um, I mean, you do think with, you, you know, you're talking about potentially identical twins, the notion that they would have, it's just kind of a fascinating thing to think about, right? That some kids who are almost identical 
would have very potentially different life outcomes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I don't entirely, I guess, buy it from a causal standpoint, but I mean, it, it, it is very interesting just to think that somehow kids who are that similar genetically, right, are having potentially very different life outcomes because of things like relationships and wondering, it just makes me wonder where, you know, what accounts for that, right? Well, and the other one that was just fascinating was, um, you said it was uh, Asian males was the biggest effect. Yep. What do you make of that? <laughs> oh, man, I know. And, and the, the, the analysts didn't have any any real uh, hypothesis there either, because I was looking for it. Because <laughs> I'm kind of struggling with that myself, right? Um, yeah, they benefited most in terms of GPA and additional years of evidence. I don't know, David. Huh. You got anything? Yeah, I don't really have anything. Okay, well, so I guess one final question. Were there any sort of hard takeaways or soft takeaways in terms of what schools can do differently or how we should be thinking about this? Is it something that we should be promoting more actively or consciously? Is it the sort of thing? We were talking about this with Adam earlier in the episode. I mean, my gut tells me that a lot of this is just sort of organic, um, but obviously there are things that you can do like sports. Right. And so, yeah, they made the point of, you know, if, if you try to make it, you know, more organized, it loses the essence of what it means to kids especially because they're sort of organically finding each other. But one thing they did say, which I alluded to, was just, again, a more diverse teacher workforce that will see more of these, you know, Black and Latino kids presumably attach themselves to mentors if they share their background, race or SES or what have you. And that's a point that they made explicitly in the conclusion. And of course, we've seen some of this work from Seth Gershenson and others in terms of the benefits we see between, you know, same race teachers and students and that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff. We could probably keep talking about it for hours here. But I think, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. So until next time, I'm David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.